Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Stephen Hinshaw, who is a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, and professor of psychiatry at UCSF. His work focuses on developmental psychopathology, clinical interventions in attention deficits and hyperactivity, and mental, mental illness stigma. His excellent teaching and research over the years brought him numerous awards, including those from the Society of Science, of Clinical Psychology, the Society for Research in Child Development, and the American Psychological Association. He has authored over 360 articles and chapters, plus 12 books. Welcome, Steve. Thanks for having me on. You, a um, couple of years ago, you wrote, uh, you published a very deeply personal book uh, about your dad and yourself, an autobiography uh, entitled Another Kind of Madness, A Journey Through the Stigma and Hope of Mental Illness. Um, could, you, could you talk a little bit about the book? So the book is the deepest dive I've yet taken in all my writing and speaking about growing up in what may have been to an outside view, a very idyllic childhood back in the Midwest. My father was a philosophy professor at Ohio State. My mother was a lecturer in English at Ohio State. My little sister and I would go to the football games in the big horseshoe Ohio Stadium, went to campus and visited dad's office a lot. And what could have been better? Well, my dad, the warm and very brilliant philosopher, would disappear for three months or six months or at one point a year at a time without any warning, yeah. without any contact while he was gone or explanation from my mother. And then one day magically reappear. But the unspoken rule was we couldn't talk about his disappearance, hmm. Mike Jinx's recovery. So it was this layer of mystifying silence all around my childhood and adolescence. What I did not know was that when my sister and I were quite young, yeah. 
his lead doctor, a psychiatrist over at Ohio State, told him that because of his lifelong diagnosis of very severe mental illness, they thought it was schizophrenia at the time. Mm-hmm. I, I later helped him get a correct diagnosis of bipolar disorder. But because of that, because of the utter seriousness of it, that if my little sister and I ever learned of his mental illness and these terrible hospitalizations, we would be, in the doctor's words, permanently destroyed. So my mother and father were sworn to secrecy to never tell the reason for the absences. Yeah, yeah. And you came to know about this only when you are 18 years old or something along those lines? I had, like a lot of teenagers, but probably me even more so, gotten into sports and friends and school and kind of was resentful for some of the distance in our home, even though dad, when he was around, was a very warm father. So I went back east from Ohio to college. I attended Harvard, um, a very exciting time of life. And I came home for six days that following April, first spring break of my college career, my freshman year. And one afternoon, the fruit trees were blossoming in April in the front yard of our home in Columbus, not too far from the campus. And mom was over at Ohio State teaching. My sister was over at the high school where she was two years younger than I, still still a junior in high school. And dad said, son, come into my study. Perhaps you should learn something about my life. Well, I almost froze. Mm. We didn't, this was a family that didn't talk about what happened. Sat down in front of my dad's desk for 30 or 40 minutes and He began to tell me uh, of many aspects of his life, but including his first episode that happened when he was 16 out in Southern California. Right. 1936, uh, the uh, international visitors to the house, my grandfather, my dad's dad, had been a prohibition leader in the United States and internationally. International visitors would come and say, you Americans are isolationists. Why aren't you stopping Hitler and Mussolini and my dad, who was a good student, a very religious young man, athlete, always worried about these pronouncements. But summer of 1936, the weather's getting very warm in the late summer. He can't sleep. He's agitated, pacing the streets of Pasadena all night long Mm -hmm. until suddenly the idea emerged that his arms had become wings. And he was the savior to save the free world from the Nazis, the fascists. And he surreptitiously at dawn after staying out all night, crept up the trellis to the family home and with his wings, his arms spread, made his first, quote, flight, which lasted a second and a half. And he crashed to the pavement below. He was unconscious. He had a concussion. He broke his wrist, survived Mm. and ended up for six months in a terrible public mental facility. Um, not too far from Pasadena, with a diagnosis of chronic schizophrenia and having essentially been given up for dead. Recovered, as he did many times in his life, almost spontaneously, went on to great things. Stanford as a student, Princeton PhD student, worked with Albert Einstein and um, Bertrand Russell. But not too far after many of his triumphs, were these psychotic periods of what we now know as uh, the manic phase of bipolar disorder. And once dad started to unveil the secret, the family secret, 
my life changed in that 40 minute period, I can tell you. And I went back to Cambridge, Mass, changed my major from pre-med to psychology and thought, I better learn about mental illness. I better learn about the schizophrenia he had, but was suspicious of that was the right diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Maybe I could save my dad and family <clears throat> and maybe I could help inform the world about what psychology and psychiatry and neurosciences were all about. So I had this mission based on that first talk and dad and I talked a few times a year for the rest of his life. But I was also quite terrified because I didn't tell any of my roommates or friends or girlfriends or professors, I wouldn't be fit to be a psychology major. And I feared that schizophrenia, I was taking psychology courses. Well, we know that it really runs in families through genes that are passed down. Maybe I'm next. Mm-hmm. Maybe if I didn't walk a pretty straight and narrow path, I'd be in some of the country's worst mental hospitals the way dad did. So that, that first talk gave me a sense of mission. It set me on my life's course. But also until I learned to open up oh, gradually over the years, I was terrified that I would be next to kind of embrace the family secret. Yeah, yeah. And what is the what is the incidence rate uh, of bipolar disease in the U.S.? So for a long time, from about 1920, yeah. year after my dad was born, till about the 1970s, if you had as a patient, as a kid or a teen or an adult, any hallucination or delusion, a, a psychotic symptom, you were automatically classified as having schizophrenia. Mm. The Europeans and and psychiatrists in Asia had it better that there was this thing called manic depressive illness, now known as bipolar disorder. And in a very um, florid manic phase where you have these beliefs that you're all powerful, you might similarly hear voices and have these fixed delusional beliefs. But that didn't mean that you had schizophrenia. It meant that you had bipolar disorder. So the United States was slow to catch on. And my dad was the victim of misdiagnosis for about 40 years. So in reality, about 1% of the population by adulthood will develop schizophrenia. And about double that, about two, maybe two and a half or 3% will develop bipolar disorder, this alternation of manias and depressions. Okay. And... And the and the the rate of suicide uh, in that cohort is is extremely high, right? It's extraordinarily high. I mean, yeah. the sort of myth is: well, you get manic, uh, you're on top of the world, and you're grandiose, and you laugh and giggle, and you don't need much sleep, and everything looks good and tastes good, and sex has never felt better. And that may be true for a few days of hypomania, the early stages of of a manic episode. But by the time, as was clearly the case for my dad, you develop beyond hypomania, the later phases or stages where the delusional beliefs have you not knowing what's up from down and your judgment is terrible. Uh, And then almost inevitably despair and depression set in. But maybe at the same time, your energy levels high from mania It's that combination, we call it a mixed episode, of the sort of manic energy and the depressive, despairing feelings that make bipolar disorder the most lethal psychiatric condition you can have. 40% of untreated people with bipolar disorder will make a serious attempt on their lives, and about half of that 40% 
will complete a suicide. So despite the sort of romantic stereotype of bipolar disorder, um, the, the consequences can be uh, literally deathly. Right, yeah. Your, your book reminded me, Steve, of uh, my childhood as well. So I grew up in, in uh, South India. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, before I came to graduate school in the U.S. and the area that I grew up, uh, I can't quite remember the statistics, but it used to have suicide per capita higher than Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, at one point, you know, it had the highest uh, suicide per capita. But um, I, I, can only, I can remember only one mental hospital <laughs> in, yeah. in, the, in the whole area. And, yeah. and, and uh, this goes to, um, you know, your, your kind of underlying theme in the book, which is uh, there is a disease, uh, but also important is this idea that we are not really, um, you know, really facing it, right? So the, so the stigma that goes, uh, goes with it is an equally, um, equally important issue. So uh, I, I'm really glad you raised that. And, and the book is 95% a, a deep memoir. But periodically, I raise this concept of stigma in the book's pages and, and what it means. And this is a, a Greek term back in ancient Athens. If you were at the Agora, the marketplace, agoraphobia literally is the fear of the marketplace in, in Greek. Yeah. Um, maybe Greek citizens... Athenian citizens would want to have known if you had fought for Sparta rather than Athens in the last war, or if you had been a former slave. Well, you couldn't necessarily tell by looking at the person. So the stigma both referred to the sharp knife-like instrument to cut a brand or burn a brand into the skin and the mark in the skin that gave you away, that Mm -hmm. revealed your status. And so stigma today still can be physical. Uh, Hitler branded people in concentration camps with numbers on their wrists, and some nations branded, literally branded HIV positive individuals in the 80s, you know, stay away. Mm -hmm. But most stigma today is psychological, it's inferred. If you have a serious mental illness, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, even depression or an eating disorder, you're unpredictable. It's shameful. Your parents probably uh, made you have it. Or you, have, you suffer from uh, being victim of an evil or animal spirit. Or today, well, even your genes are flawed. Stigma surrounding mental illness, even though it's not a physical brand today, is extremely high. We know in most countries much more factually about mental illness. It's a bit out of the closet. But the fear and the threat and the stereotype that everyone with a mental disorder is either incompetent or violent We've not moved the needle sufficiently. And so I wrote this book to to provide a kind of a case study, a, a testimonial, if you will, about even in the 20th century and now moving into the 21st century, mm-hmm. despite our knowledge of psychology, medicine, psychiatry, neurology, we still fear mental health conditions and we still stigmatize them. And there are many solutions, I believe, but one of them is to tell our stories Uh, to reveal and disclose this is what's happened with cancer. Cancer in the United States, not so many years ago when I was a boy, for example, you would never put if your uncle or grandmother died of cancer, the cause of death in the obituary, because everyone knew back then 
yeah. in the middle of the 20th century that cancer was a shameful disease. It, you really brought it upon yourself because you'd lost the will to live. Well, today, cancer, look at breast cancer in women. It's a, it's a national, international cause. People wear pink to symbolize the fight against breast cancer. We've destigmatized cancer so that it's now something to work to help conquer, but we're still in the beginning stages for mental health issues to get to that level of destigmatization. Right, right. Yeah, and it appears that there is also a structural issue in the healthcare arena, right? So yeah. we, 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 you know, we have very, uh, we have segmentized behavioral health from, from physical health and both on the provider side as well as on the payer side. Yep. And I, I think the data is very clear that um, behavioral health issues ultimately end up in physical health. And, you know, the, the way that the healthcare system is set up, you, you know, you get into trouble and you try to treat it. Uh, but we don't have enough effort and investments going into trying to prevent it, uh, which would require, uh, I believe, more of an integrated view of the human being. I, I couldn't agree more. So my father was a philosopher, as I'd mentioned, and his favorite philosopher, I asked him when I was a boy, he said, well, there's many, son, but Descartes may have been his favorite. And of course, the Cartesian dualism, mind versus body. And and we know, know that mind and body are inseparable. Yeah. That having, in the case of mental illnesses, having depression, having post-traumatic stress disorder, having psychotic symptoms, lessen the lifespan by 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Mm. Mental stress and distress can be a precipitant of coronary artery disease. Yeah. Menting illnesses later on. It's not mind versus body. It's an integrated mind-body system that we're just, this is what neuroscientists around the world are trying to do. Discover how our three-pound brains produce this unique human consciousness, right? Right. <laughs> but you're right about the healthcare system. We have made huge progress toward understanding infectious illness and more complex illnesses and better treatments than ever. We still don't have perfect access to healthcare. Some countries are better than others. Yeah. But until very recently, if you went in for a mental illness, well, just as my dad once told me as he was growing older, son, I, I've had a mental illness my whole life. Maybe I've made it up. <laughs> he told me before he passed away, he wished he'd had cancer because that was a real illness. Mm. Maybe he had imagined all his symptoms his whole life. So here's this very smart philosopher who at one level read all the readings I sent him about bipolar disorder and the lithium he finally took. But at another level, being thrown in back wards at many times of his life yeah. and having been allowed to discuss the reality of his mental illness. He felt ashamed. He felt personally responsible. And so finally, to get to the systems of care, we have passed laws in the United States a couple times in the last 25 years to, to try to achieve what's called parity, P-A-R-I-T-Y. Yeah. If you have a mental disorder, you should get the same level of care and reimbursement for care as a physical illness. Well, it's a great idea, but there's loopholes that are huge. Hmm. Uh, small businesses are exempt. 
if you actually look at what the reimbursable costs are, they're still much better for physical than, than mental disorders. So we end up having a dual care system whereby your depression or your PTSD or bipolar disorder gets shunned and ignored, but we might be able to help uh, the illness in your lung you have. And it's just simply unacceptable, given what we know about the integration of physical and mental health these days. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, the data is not even shared, right? So the disconnected EMR system, so behavioral health clinics uh, have their own data and the physical health <laughs> physicians have their own data and they don't yeah. even talk to each other. It, should, uh, it shouldn't be yeah. that way. But and, and I believe that we're especially with young people. I do a lot of work with high schoolers these days. Yeah both to promote mental health, but also to start clubs in high schools, mm-hmm. not with a professional, but they're the stigma clubs, the anti-stigma clubs in high school, where the students with our guidance, their weekly sessions with one of the teachers as an advisor, figure out ways to share, to disclose, to confront the school administration, to get discussions in class going, to meet with the city council and Young people today, the high schoolers tell us, we don't really believe in stigma the way you kind of old people do, you old professors yeah. do. We're, we're <laughs> right. more accepting. And, and I think there is a hunger for authenticity. We've seen it in sexual minority rights issues, Supreme Court decision yesterday in our country yeah. to, to open things up even more for access for so-called mental illnesses. Well, we all differ in our skin color. We all differ in our behavioral strengths and weaknesses. And yes, at the extremes, there are realities called mental illnesses, but it's not the subject of shame and shunning. Let's be open about it and get people access to the care that an access to treatment would probably be the best antidote to stigma that we really could have. Right, right. Yeah, I want to shift gear and, um, you know, talk a little bit about ADHD. And this is another um, area of focus for you. And uh, ADHD, I I, I guess, has gone through uh, many, many uh, name changes uh, over the years. Now it's called ADHD spectrum. Yep. Yep. So it's quite interesting. When I was in graduate school several decades ago now, we learned that You either had autism or you didn't. Certainly, now that when I was in grad school, we'd sort of awakened to the fact that bipolar disorder existed. Well, bipolar disorder, you had it or you didn't. We now call them autism spectrum disorders. Hmm. We talk about the bipolar spectrum, bipolar type one, full florid manias and alternating with depressions, bipolar type two, milder hypomania is alternating with depressions. In another category, cyclothymic disorder, mild, quick depressions and manias alternating. It's on a continuum. ADHD, is it a yes, you have it or you don't? It's a lot like blood pressure. When do you have hypertension? If your uh, ratio is... uh, 140 over 90, you'd probably can be considered borderline hypertensive. Some cardiologists would now say you're actually in the risk range because we can treat and, and prolong your life. So with many physical disorders and with many mental disorders, the genetic liability, the number of traumatic events you've had all predict where you might be in the spectrum. What the exact cutoff is is sometimes unknown. Yeah. But 
if we understand that each of us is on a spectrum of certain personality traits, <laughs> eye color, hair color, um, <laughs> need for glasses or not, how emotionally introverted and extroverted we are, and that above a certain risk factor, I mean, certain genetic risk and certain environmental factors contribute to cancer. The same is true at a broad level for mental illnesses, except that they're deemed as shameful and for which one is personally responsible. So they're not part of the same conversation. But back to your main point, ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Yeah, if you have all of the symptoms at a very extreme level, given your age, will probably put you in the diagnosable category. But is everyone perfectly attentive all the time? No. Some people lose their focus more easily than others. And so we have to make a decision about who might get needed services if they're above a certain cutoff point. Right, right. And I know that uh, there were some incentives, uh, part of the education system, uh, that there was a sudden rise in uh, diagnoses in the U.S., right, of ADHD at some point. Yeah, so... This is a long history, and I'll have to be kind of at the headline level of it. Yeah. Once it became, what's the right term, um, permittable mm-hmm. under the federal special education laws of the 70s and 80s and 90s in our country, that if you had a certain condition that might impair your learning, like dyslexia or reading disorder or ADHD, you could get, if your kid got diagnosed, accommodations. Yeah. So rather than, oh, boy, we don't want to have our kid get this ADHD label. Well, maybe our kid really does have clinically significant problems with impulse control and focused attention. And getting a diagnosis could get her into a reading resource room three times a week. Or maybe our son could get some medication that would help his focus. So that's understandable. We destigmatize a bit. We get needed services. However, the rise in the last 20 years of diagnoses of ADHD in the United States puts it now at at least double the world's average. Mm. What's amazing is in every country on Earth, maybe with a few exceptions of complete subsistence economies where there's no compulsory education whatsoever. But in just about every country, the rates of kids, grade school kids, middle school kids, high school kids, who meet criteria for ADHD is remarkably similar, five to 7%. It makes you think, and the genetics will bear this out, that if you have a certain genetic vulnerability to low focus and you're put in compulsory education, no matter where you live, Pretty similar mm. percentage of kids are going to get the diagnosis. But why would the United States have rates of 12 or 14 percent? Right. So my colleague, Richard Scheffler, health economist in the School of Public Health and Public Policy here at UC Berkeley, and I started to collaborate over a decade ago. Yeah. And we wrote a book some years back called The ADHD Explosion. And we talked about the, the biological and psychological reality of ADHD. This isn't something made up. It's real. However... What are the forces that are driving these kind of unconscionably high rates of diagnosis, particularly in the U.S.? And sort of the after a lot of looks at a lot of national data sets, we found that 
we had a good example of what's called an unintended consequence or an unintended <laughs> outcome of social yeah. policy. And this social policy has to do with school testing. Right. So many states had uh, enacted laws in the 80s and 90s in order to get their school public school district scores up. These laws are called consequential accountability. Right. Unless your district scores have hit a certain notch or unless they're progressively going up, well, your district gets written up in the paper and uh, you might lose funding or maybe even the state government will take over your school district and put it in a receivership. Mm. So testing is all. So what we found was that when that became national with no child left behind, the 21 states had not enacted such laws and they suddenly did. It was one of the uh, provisions of no child left behind in those states that suddenly had these testing accountability laws for the yeah. poorest kids in those states, not the upper middle class kids whose parents are seeking accommodation, the poorest kids shot up with ADHD diagnost di diagnostic increases by 60% over four years. <laughs> it's as though the, the administrators were saying, let's get these kids labeled come hell or high water, and then they'll get the accommodations and they'll get the services or until this became illegal. And this shows how political it had become. Yeah. In some regions of the country, if you got a kid in your district diagnosed with ADHD, next spring when the achievement testing came around, that kid's scores were, were pulled from the district's average because they were special ed. <laughs> so the, the districts were gaming the system in order to boost their test scores by over-diagnosing kids. So it shows that even medical conditions like ADHD can become highly politicized. Right, right. So, so Steve, you had talked about uh, systematic education being a yeah. cause for ADHD. And, you know, uh, I sometimes think about the, the prescriptive type of education that we have in the U.S. and, and most of the world today. Uh, I had the same physics book in the university that my daughter used uh, 35 <laughs> years later. Yeah. Um, and so... You know, it's not only prescriptive, it's also very uh, static uh, yep. in its yep. presentation. And you have argued that, you know, that whole concept uh, creates issues uh, for kids. And I think it was uh, no um, recently uh, have moved away from that and said every individual, every kid can design his or her own curriculum. They're not really asking uh, students to take anything specific anymore. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, you have some ideas around that as well, right? Yeah. So that's a fascinating topic. So would let's, let's start at the beginning. Would ADHD exist earlier in history or in, in the rare uh, cases around the world today in a hunter gatherer society? Right. Yeah. 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 Well, no, there's no schooling. Kids are physically active out helping support the tribe's survival from an early age. However, Let's say a kid's got a certain genetic configuration, is highly active, highly impulsive, highly scans the environment. Well, that might be ad adaptive in a natural selection sense for such a tribe. But there's only three arrows and they're all shot too quickly. <laughs> and the tribe goes hungry for a week. So extremes of impulse control might yeah. be a problem before compulsory education and systematic education. Now let's move into the 
agricultural era and then written language cuneiform and the other languages and in the last couple hundred years compulsory education around the world what could elicit adhd symptoms and behaviors more than having to sit still in a one-room schoolhouse with a rote teacher right <laughs> yeah the human, the human child's mind didn't evolve to learn to sit still and to read so it Compulsory education is the revealer, right? Right. It, it, you know, tongue-in-cheek, you'd say, well, it causes ADHD. It causes learning disabilities. And the genes for ADHD and learning disabilities have been around since we've been a species. But they're revealed when the human youngster must do things that throughout history the youngster didn't have to do before. But now we're in the post-postmodern era. Do we have to make every kid sit still? Is it a factory-based model? Can we have individual curricula? Can we have kids walking around a classroom and designing group projects? And so some educators would say that if we only had completely individualized instructional plans and completely open classrooms, we would eliminate ADHD. I think that's extreme. We would still see, like the hunter-gatherer example, extremes of uh, low focus or extremes of impulsivity in any setting. However, we could maximize the learning of everyone by not having the rigid, systematic, same textbook, X decades later, rote factory way of thinking about education as educational reforms continue to happen. Right. It's not just kids with ADHD or kids with learning problems, but everybody's learning may benefit from a more student activity, action-focused education. So I think there's a lot to be said there. Yeah, yeah. The the hunter-gatherer uh, time period, I think you have done some work here. Uh, National Geographic had a program. Uh, it was by Spencer Wells, the biologist, that, you know, you could send a saliva sample and, mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah, they will show you the migratory paths yeah. uh, all the way from 50,000 years ago. Uh, that you've been, uh, or you know, your ancestors been part of, right? And uh, and I think you have uh, looked at, you know, it, this gene or, or this characteristic uh, actually allows uh, humans to explore, and the mm -hmm. connection between um, the continents, Asia and, and the Americas, and I think there is a distinct difference you found uh, that North America, South America. Uh, you know, when that uh, connection was was uh, open for people to travel through. Right. Uh, when the, when yeah. the Bering Strait wasn't yeah. a strait, was a landmass. And so I didn't do this research, but I've read it carefully and, and cite it. We don't want to make the mistake and say, well, there's one gene for bipolar disorder and one or two genes for ADHD. These are multifactorial conditions. Yeah, yeah. But we know that one allele one variant of a certain gene that predicts and, and the gene codes for how many receptors for the neurotransmitter dopamine are present in your brain. And dopamine is very related to reward and exploration and all kinds of things. Mm. So the long story short is uh, the, the science of sort of historical anthropology and medical anthropology has coalesced to the point where 15,000 years ago, right at the beginning of the sort of last major ice age, right. 
this gene frequency. It's called the DRD4 gene, the dopamine type 4 receptor gene. We don't need that detail. Yeah. Had a very low prevalence in the landmass of what we today call Asia. Mm -hmm. Ice Age, people are retreating before it. Uh, the explorers in Asia at that time started to migrate and there were no cars back then. It was slow <laughs> generation by generation. And yeah. a number of them traverse over into modern day Alaska and then down into British Columbia and down into Oregon, Washington, California. And eventually years and years, years later down into Central and South America. Right. What's fascinating is if you do counts of this dopamine related gene in Asia back in the day, and then with indigenous groups over the time periods of their travels and explorations into the new world, the yep. gene frequency rose from one or 2% to, in the tip of South America, over 35%. Wow. Yeah. The explorers, the ones who took the risk, probably one of the reasons they did this was they were more impulsive and sensation seeking than the rest mm -hmm. and it helped their survival It had spread into new territory. So what might've been a survival gene back then today is a risk gene for ADHD. If you have to sit into a classroom. All day. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it gives you perspective that because we taught we're sort of in the genetic and post-genetic era, bipolar disorder we're talking about with my dad, the statistics called the heritability. Yeah. It's a percentage. Uh, I've got bipolar, Gil, and you don't, right? It's, it's not about if I have bipolar disorder, what percentage of genes are involved in me. And that's not what it means. It means why are there differences in people mm -hmm. in a certain trait or condition? And are those differences related to genetic differences between people or environmental differences? So heritability is the statistic. It puts it between zero and 100%. Bipolar disorder is 80% heritable. The mm -hmm. reasons why 2% of the population have bipolar disorder and 98% don't are 80% genetic differences between people. Yeah. ADHD is 75% heritable. It's not just how you're parented. Genes have a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm. So we tend to say, holy moly, Schizophrenia, 65% heritable bipolar disorder. It wasn't caused by bad parents. It's caused by genes. Yeah. But the mistake is to think that the genes you may have for bipolar schizophrenia are these evil illness genes. They're the very genes that made some people explorers 15,000 years ago. Right. They're the very genes that in a different environmental niche in the ecology and social ecology of all this might have helped survival. So we, we today, if you uh, recoil, you're walking down your neighborhood sidewalk and you see a sick, that's a snake, you have a snake phobia. Well, back <laughs> in the Savannah, if we made the other mistake and we thought it was a stick, but it was a snake, those genes would have never propagated. That's so right. Yeah. <laughs> are, are anxiety disorder genes healthy or unhealthy? It depends on the situation and context, right? Sure, sure. Yeah. And and your lab in, at Berkeley now, uh, Steve, uh, also doing some fascinating work. So there is uh, there is a study that is still going on. It's a longitudinal study. It's called Berkeley Girls with ADHD. 
Yes, we call it the Berkeley Girls with ADHD Longitudinal Study. And if you're yeah. good at acronyms, that spells BGALS, so the Berkeley <laughs> Gals Study. Yes. So back 25 years ago, I wrote a grant to the National Institute of Mental Health saying, I don't really believe that girls can't get ADHD. And that's what the sort of standard was. It's very, very vanishingly rare in girls. They, they don't get ADHD. Yes. So this was at the time, late 80s and 90s, when the National Institutes of Health in general were saying, women get heart attacks this is the way men do, maybe not at the same rate, but the only models we have are male models. We need to have inclusion of gender and ethnicity and race in studies. And so in some ways I capitalized on that and proposed to collect very intensive data on a sample of girls with ADHD carefully diagnosed uh, right. in a matched group of girls typically developing same neighborhood, same school, same age, same ethnicity. And we ran summer camps, learned tons about them and have systematically followed them up every five years. So this longitudinal study is the largest longitudinal study of girls with ADHD anywhere in the world. Yeah. Now it's only 228 girls. We wish it were 2,280, uh, but that would have cost more funds than NIMH had for us. <laughs> right. We have learned some really interesting things. Number one, girls do get ADHD, not at the same rate as boys. There's two or two and a half boys for every girl with ADHD, but that's true for autism, four to one. Tourette's disorders, four or five to one. Mm -hmm. Early aggressive conduct disorders, six to one. The early neurodevelopmental disorders in life are male predominant. And there's a host of genetic and environmental reasons for that. But if you're a girl who has that potential, that liability, and you express ADHD, in many ways, when you're a kid, you have the same problems focusing in the classroom. Yeah. And other kids don't like the fact that you're not paying attention to them. You're paying attention to your own internal mind state. And so girls with ADHD actually are rejected by their peer group even more than boys with ADHD are rejected by their male peer, peer group. Mm -hmm. The same kinds of neuropsychological tests of working memory, impulse control. We did all sorts of testing of these girls, very comparable to scores of boys. However... Yeah. Over time, and this is why you do a longitudinal study, you'd like to know what are the outcomes. Right. Our girls with ADHD were at lower risk for most forms of drug abuse. Now, they did use tobacco at high rates, just the way that boys with ADHD tend to. But they didn't have the same rates of illicit drug use as many male samples of ADHD. Hmm. What they did show was shockingly high rates by age 20 and age 25 of what we call self-injury, cutting, self-mutilating, burning, wow. all the way to actual suicide attempts, a, a frank attempt at one's own life. At, at a higher rate than boys? So A, a much higher rate than the comparison group of girls in yeah. the typically developing group, and B, a higher rate, we believe, than boys with ADHD. Now, we would need samples of thousands and tens of thousands to prove that it's really higher in girls than boys. Some of the Scandinavian epidemiological studies with 
tens of thousands of people with ADHD and millions in their databases are showing that by adulthood, ADHD is a risk factor for suicide in both men and women, but there's a worse risk, a higher risk in women. So we ask, well, what's going on? Why do we see this gender or sex specific effect? And we think that it's number one, if a girl is really impulsive, not just Mm -hmm. inattentive, but got to do it right now. And she's had some harsh interactions with her family, because these are not girls that are easy to raise. (laughs) And if the girl has gotten into trouble with her peer group and the peer group basically says, we don't want to play with her anymore. Right. If you put those three factors together, that explains a large amount of this extraordinarily high risk for NSSI, non-suicidal self-injury, or frank suicide attempts. And we're seeking funding to follow the sample into their 30s as they get older in adulthood. And we're hoping that this risk for self-injury will decrease and we're looking for the protective factors yeah. that, that can help. I'm gonna mention one other finding. Sure. Over 16 years after the summer camp, so between the ages of girlhood and now mid to late 20s, what percentage of our control group, our typically developing group of girls had an unplanned pregnancy? 10%. What percentage of the girls with ADHD? 45%. Wow. This is a striking difference. You don't need a statistical significance test to know that that's you know, a, a relative risk of four and a half. And we have found, and this is why when you have different waves of data, you might not just have a percentage difference, but you could look back in time and try to explain, see what mediates that. It's the girls with ADHD who, by late elementary and middle school, were really getting off track academically. So they're Mm -hmm. de-identified with school and their teachers think that they don't really care and their peers are responding to them that way. It's that early and adolescent academic underachievement that's the key factor that often predicts that unplanned pregnancy by their late teens and 20s. So this gives us a chance to figure out if we want to do some prevention of unplanned pregnancy, which has consequences for sexually transmitted infection, has consequences for kids who aren't wanted being in the world, all kinds of things. Yeah. We really need to, yeah, it'd be great to reduce some of the symptoms of inattention and impulsivity, but we really need to help these girls work on their academics. Yeah, yeah. I hope you can continue that, Steve. Uh, I would imagine there is nothing like this that anybody else attempted, right? You know, it's a long duration, longitudinal. Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of wonderful longitudinal studies in the world, if, if you look around, but no one has had a big enough sample of girls. I mean, the longest followed girl, sample of girls with ADHD other than this had a sample of 16. Right. And so right. You, you can't really generalize that much. So um, one of the sort of secrets, if you do longitudinal research, it's not really a secret, is you've got to get as many participants coming back for each new wave of data collection as you can. Yeah. If you only get 50% coming back, well, guess who the 50% are missing are? They're the ones who had more problems at the beginning. And you can do all the statistical adjustments in the world you like, and it's, it's hard to you know put the genie back in the bottle. 
But right. we've been able to have 93 to 95% of our participants back every wave of follow-up. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Which is, uh, uh, you know, we give them a stipend for coming back in. We track them regularly with holiday and birthday cards and gift cards. We connect with them on social media. And they were always treated really well uh, at the summer programs and at each follow-up. And so doing good longitudinal research isn't just cranking out the, the computer, right? It's <laughs> really caring for your participants and their families and making them feel really heard over time. And these girls are not girls anymore. They're women, young women, and their families know that they're helping to contribute to science. And I think that's a value a lot of people have. Yeah, yeah. So I want to close with, you know, uh, getting your views on something entirely different. Um, mm -hmm. So as you know, you know, the, we've been trying to model the brain um, from the advent of computers and haven't gotten anywhere. Um, some of the latest technologies, so just generally called now cognitive com computing or neuromorphic uh, computing, um, you know, is uh, beginning to show capacities. You know, if you want to look at neurons and, and synapses, I guess that is 10 to the power 11 neurons in the brain. And yep. 10 to the power 15 synapses or something like that, um, we could, um, you know, maybe in a few years get closer to that, those types of numbers from a modeling perspective. Uh, the problem with the computer, uh, as you know, is that it doesn't make any errors. <laughs> it right. produces the same answer all the time. And so, so it's more of a conceptual question, Steve. You know, do you think... Um, we could, uh, in silica, model the brain at some point, uh, provided, you know, we have all this new technologies and capacities coming through. But uh, in the absence of the theory of consciousness, uh, do you believe we will never get there? Boy, if I had the world's best crystal ball, I could do <laughs> a good answer. I, so I'm not a, a big data person, nor am I a card-carrying neuroscientist. I'm a clinical and developmental psychologist, but I'm, of course, fascinated by these very issues you're raising. Yeah. So in brief, I think we're going to get ever closer. However, I would ask you and others who think about this issue to think not just about computing capacity and how many hundred billion neurons in the adult brain. But remember, the baby at birth had over 200 billion. Mm. What happens in the first year and a half to two of life is that half the neurons in the infant brain are lost. Right. We call it pruning. Hmm. Unless there's a synaptic connection made. Right. then that neuron doesn't really have any use any longer. So another kind of intriguing developmental fact. So conception, merge cell, by a few weeks in, the precursors of a neural tube develops, which becomes a brain. So let's say from about week seven or eight, of, develop, uh, of uh, embryonic development, then to the fetal development, then to the baby's birth at 40 weeks, yeah. how many neurons are created, new neurons in the baby's brain? 7,500 every second hmm. for 32 weeks. Right. A second. 
7,000, 7,000, 7,000. If you don't believe in miracles, that's a miracle, right? So neurogenesis is this unfathomably fast process. But by the time it's the neurogenesis has happened, now we have neural pruning. Yes. So the experience walking or crawling and walking and being spoken to and eye contact, this long period of helplessness and development of the human infant is sculpting the brain back the other way and making it efficient in the way that that ultra fast creation happened in utero. So I think there's developmental principles about how much learning, yeah, how much trial and error it takes to get a working brain that all the computing power in the world maybe ought to take development into account to see how how we can get machines to think in the way we like them to think. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, Steve. You know, I have to think more about so 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 you know this is very clear that the early experiences of the baby uh, are are so critical, right? Um, you know that determines which neuron is going to stay and which neuron is not going to stay. That's exactly right. And so obviously, there's genes and master genes that help predict where the axon will sprout and migrate towards other neurons. But unless experience-dependent learning happens. Yeah. And that axon forms a synaptic connection with the dendrite of the next, that axon and that neuron are going to disappear. So it's, you can't, we were talking a little while ago, you can't separate out biology and experience. It's this gene environment interplay mm-hmm. to the nth power during early development that that's the creator of human self-awareness and consciousness. And um, I just would urge all the budding neuroscientists and big data people out there to look developmentally at um, how complex this process is. Yeah. And from a policy perspective, uh, I'm just jumping out to, 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 you know, so we talked about education and again, in this prescriptive, prescriptive structured view of education, it starts when you are four years old or three years old. Yeah. Um, but what we need to think about from a policy perspective, I think, it's really education starting at day one, right? Education starting, and we talk now and now not just about, you know, three to five is preschool, but zero to eight or negative nine, negative nine months to age eight. It starts prenatally with nutrition. Right. Uh, the developing embryo and fetus can hear the mother and father talking out there. Um I'm not talking about trying to develop super Einstein babies by you know, <laughs> teaching them Mozart the second day of life, but good, regular, stimulating interactions and verbal, um, the, the, the amount of words a baby is exposed to and the quality of interactions and keeping kids away from traumatic and adverse experiences. This is how the brain is sculpted. Yeah. 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 And, and that's a lifelong investment, not only for the individual, but for society. Absolutely. So, if, society we really have, wanted, yeah. if we really wanted to help, I mean, then this is, you know, Nobel Prize has been won on this basis. James Heckman at University of Chicago. Yeah. The investment a society puts in its very early education helps determine the economic future of that country. So this isn't just soft science feel good about little kids. This is economic reality and our survival as a species. Depends on it. Yeah, absolutely. This was, uh, this was great, Steve. I really appreciate all the time you spend with me.
Well, it's a delight to talk to you. Your questions are provocative. Uh, the only problem is we didn't have three more hours to get into depth. But <laughs> maybe we can do it again. Great. Uh, All right. Safe. Thanks a million. Stay safe. Thank Bye. you.